I've said this before, it came up in one of Father's homilies not too long ago when the issue of free will came up and why, why God gives permission for evil. You spoke about that. Um, I, I think it's very much on my mind, even, probably more so because of this group, because we do say prayers together and, and it's um, impossible for me to hear all the prayers without being aware how universal burdens are. We all carry them and if I'd never asked for prayers, um, if we we're all left to ourselves, when we just meet each other in church or at the store or someplace in passing, we're generally, I think, so cheerful. You know, generally, when I meet everybody, everybody's pretty personal, and every, you know, you don't have any sense of burdens. But I ask for prayers, and then suddenly you just realize there's very few people who escape them. I mean, they're all here. The typical answer to that question: Why does God give permission for evil? Why does He allow it? And and even more. Um, why, why does he allow evil men to prosper and good men to suffer? Why does God allow that? It, it was the great theme of Boethius's work, Consolation of Philosophy, which I was going to do. Still might do it, we'll see, but um, it's the theme, great theme of that work. Why does God allow evil men to, to do well in the world and good men to suffer so much? <clears throat> and the typical answer to that is free will. God has to protect our free will. I believe that. There, to my mind, there's no other answer. The, the great gift that he gave us was free will and reason. We're made in the image of God. The two ways in which we're most like him is in our capacity to know and love. And to do those, we have to have free will. We have to make choices. You can't separate reason and free will. You can't. Um, our, our power of choice depends on our ability to make distinctions between things and say, we shouldn't do this, we should do this, you know, or to love. I have to love better by doing this or, you know, so you can't separate those powers. They're inseparable, reason and free will. But I also think there's another reason, um, and I, I don't know if I've said it in this group before, but I, th I think he does it because it's, it's only by learning to bear burdens that we realize how important our choices are because so often we make choices lightly. We don't, we're not very good at seeing the consequences of things, often. We, we just live so much in our heads. By allowing us to bear the burdens, we learn to see that the choices that we make are so much graver than we ordinarily know. I think as, as humans, we're just too light. It's one of Milton's great criticisms. Adam's too light. Too light. He makes that clear again and again. Eve is too light in some ways. Um, so, and I, you know, you hear, I've heard it forever. I hear critics who are, who I think don't think much about these things. Critics will talk about a movie. I remember reading about it the first time in a major way with the movie Fargo. You've seen that movie, you know this guy starts out by doing these stupid nothing things, but the consequences multiply and, until they produce these awful horrors at the end, bodies getting chopped up in a woodcutting machine and it's grisly and grotesque and all started with this guy wanting to pull off these small nothing scams. And some of the critics said, 
that the that the problem with the movie is that the consequences were so disproportionate to the motives that led to them. The consequences were so disproportionate to the motives that produced them. My response to that was just the opposite. It's it's that so often we don't see the implications of our motives. So sometimes we feel we being unjustly treated or something unjust has happened to him, but what's happening is it's only because things become so large at some point that we realize that there was more going on in our motives than we can see. We, another way to put this is we're not, we're not as on guard against evil in the world. We don't take the precautions that we should. Church asks us to be vigilant. We're too light in the decisions we make. So when the consequences become awful, the, the easiest thing is to say, I'm innocent, poor me. You know, I didn't deserve that. But another way of looking at it is there's so much more in the soul. This is what Dante's going to show us, by the way. When we get to the inferno, it's going to open in the inferno. When we get to the depths of the inferno, there is not a sin that Dante is not going to show us, and they're all ugly. And what he's saying is, this is this is me, this is all of us. If we look in the depths of our souls, this is what we see. You know, but if you grow up thinking you're, for those of you who are in mass this morning, you know, we're, I'm okay, I'm good, I, I haven't committed murder. I mean, those are father's words. I didn't do anything bad. Why shouldn't I get into heaven? <laughs> all the literature that we've been dealing with from the beginning is, is prophetic in the sense that it shows so much more to us than ordinarily we want to see, so. I think that's why the church says, always and everywhere, be thankful, even when there are burdens, because they help us to see more clearly who we really are. They help us to be more patient. They help us to be more forbearing, to be more careful of the choices that we make, because too often we make them too lightly. <clears throat> so there's a buried Thanksgiving, or I'll, I'll include it in our prayers this morning, but I was thinking it's good to be thankful always, even for hardships. Um, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, and your words, and, and for this occasion in our church to pray for the souls in purgatory, um, to give thanks for your grace. Take our shared prayers, our collective prayers here um, for the souls in purgatory and let them um, increase your mercy and um, speed the people there who are doing penance. Let the work that they're doing to, to purge themselves, to, to, to cleanse themselves of their sins be speeded they can't go to you with impurities and perfections. They can't be released until they're, um, until they're like you, um, whole again. So let our prayers help with that, um, help wash the sins away um, so that they can go to you more quickly. Ask for a special um, um, Grace for um, Michael. Um, sorry, what's your? 
Rose. Rose, um, she's his wife, right? right? Yeah. Receive Michael um, into the afterlife, your kingdom. Forgive his sins, pardon them, please. Wash them away if um, there's a time in purgatory. <laughs> Let him be glad to join all the people there. They're not sad, they can't be. They wouldn't be there. Who are happy to be taking on burdens to make themselves better. Let him know the gladness of being in that community. And let our prayers help him. Let that be so for Rose as well, leaving him, or I mean, um, being left. Um, console her um, with her faith. Let her take a strength in knowing that he's with you. And let her longing to be with him and you um, strengthen her um, in, um, in her solitude. Ask a special prayer for um, Courtney and um, her and her husband, um, and their son Wyatt. Um, surround Wyatt with your protection. Um, let no harm come to him, please. Um, let um, let him go through this um, this gestation, the period. Um, and come to a safe delivery. Let it be safe for him and for her. And what's the husband's name? Dean. Dean? Mm -hmm. Dean. I always think, I never think of the woman carrying a child alone. It's just no, my, but right. I think of the, I don't like that. The, the husband and wife are bearing that child, even if he doesn't bear it physically. Uh, be with Dean and Courtney. Um, let their hearts be trusting in you. Um, protect them all, keep them safe. Um, and I ask a special prayer for all of us, whatever special burdens any of us carries, um, let them all draw us ever closer to you and what we do. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Can you take out the poet packet? Uh, um, I'm going to read a couple of poems um, from the medieval period and one of my reasons for wanting to read these poems this morning um, is to just make clear the contrast between our world and the medieval world. Do you guys have it? Yeah, no, I don't. Vicki, do you have it? Yes. 
You got this? Can you all take a look at the medieval poems? Do you all have these poems, the medieval ones? It says at the top, Medieval Lyric Ballads, on the back page it's got the three ravens, and then on the next page it's got Timur Mortis. Do you want to have that? We've got to scramble here because Father got out way late and... Has everybody got them? <clears throat> One of my reasons for wanting to read these poems, we're about ready to go back to Dante because Milton um, really, <laughs> Milton's such a strange figure. He's absolutely modern in the sense that he rep he's representative of um, forces that were set loose in the Reformation that are still with us. But his whole treatment of the poem is backwards looking. It's Homeric. If you look at the war in heaven, it reminds you of Homer's world. It's, it's just, in some ways, it's not a believable war. It's, it's put so much in terms of what, happened in, um, what happens in Homer and Virgil's worlds. You're going to see when we get to Dante that Dante's going to change all of that radically. Milton almost Homerizes, Virgilizes, if I can use those words. Um, a Christian vision by the battles and the you know angels meeting each other when um, when Satan meets Uriel or Gabriel those are conflicts of the kind that we saw in the Iliad and you know the Aeneid and the and the Odyssey. <clears throat> Milton's writing very much with that tradition in mind, but it almost it makes a Christian world almost Homeric and in some ways ridiculous because things change. Um, it won't be the same with Dante at all. And, um, well, and let me leave it there. But um, one of the reasons for doing these poems is that they take us back to a medieval world where man isn't estranged from nature. You know, after the Reformation and, and the scientific revolution, and the fact that they combined produces this mindset that shows man estranged from nature. Man's either a product of forces over which he has no control that's Darwin and Freud. That's, that's at the root of the scientific way of looking at the world. And the Reformation belief that man's depraved. Nature is depraved. It's fallen. It's corrupted. When you go back to the medieval poems, that, that, strange, that estrangement doesn't exist. It, it would be foreign to that way of, um, that medieval way of looking at things. So I'm going to read these two poems because in these two poems we see situations in which man is one with nature. The, the, the two are, are, don't belong to um, antagonistic orders. Um, so I'm going to read The Three Ravens and Timur Mortis. Okay. <coughs> Notice when I read the three ravens, um, what happens to the night and the way nature responds to this night. And remember that the night was the medieval ideal of what a man should be, a, 
a gentleman, um, somebody serving his liege, either his king or the woman, the beloved, so that the, the, the object of his love was not an object, something to be used for himself, which is the modern concept, for our own self-advancement. He was a servant, essentially. He served his liege, his king, or the woman that he loved. So at the center of this poem is this knight who is wounded, and then watch what happens with nature and the way that nature responds to this wounded knight. <coughs> and by the way, just a word too. We've not done this, but I, I love this when you see it. I'm, I'm sorry we couldn't do more with lyric poetry. If you've done enough work in the lyric tradition, you come to a point where you realize almost all great, lyric, almost all great poets see birds as images of poets, of prophets. Because the birds belong to the heavens and they bring things. So if you remember in Homer's world, the, the, the warriors are constantly looking for bird signs. When a bird comes by, they know that that bird carries a message from the gods. So traditionally from the beginning, birds have always been harbingers, omens, prophets, images of the poets themselves. I always love it in the beginning of the spring because you know long before somebody comes on the radio and tells you that spring's coming, Two weeks before that event, when man knows, the birds are already chirping, and you know they're in advance of technology because they're one with nature, the way animals are. So birds, birds reveal things. Every major poet, every major poet has written poems about birds. Robert Frost, Richard Wilbur, you name it. Um, there are bird poems. Richard Wilbur, who was the American Poet Laureate, wrote, wrote a poem about birds, and another one called all those birds, because they're very that's they're working within a tradition. The 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 birds image something. Robert Frost wrote, wrote several poems on birds, and so it's not an accident. We've got these three ravens, and you know that ravens are dark. They're 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 images of, of something foreboding. <coughs> three ravens. There were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree with a down, down a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree, they were as black as they might be, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? Down in yonder green field there lies a knight slain under a shield. They want carrion, they want to be fed. Down a down, hey down, hey down. His hounds, they lie down at his feet, so well they can their master keep. Down a down, hey down, hey down. His hawks, they fly so eagerly. There's no foul dare him come nigh. With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Down there comes a fallow doe, as great with young as she might go. Down a down, hey down, hey down. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. She got him upon her back and carried him to earth and lake. Down a down, hey down, hey down. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself ere he even song time. Down a down, hey down, hey down. God send every gentleman such hawks, such hounds, and such a leman. Down a down, hey down, hey down. <clears throat> Notice that the three ravens are out for breakfast. 
there's a knight that's wounded, and he is a potential carrion for their feast. Um, but the knight's protected. His hounds are by him. They're protecting him. The, the hawks, they fly eagerly. There's no foul. They, the hawks are there. And then along comes this um, doe um, who's pregnant, as great with young as she might go. She's got her own life to care for, and yet her care for this knight. It's as if there's a hierarchy um, working in nature so that nature is responsive to this knight. So she's carrying a, a, a foal, if that, um, but she risks herself for this knight, um, buries him, and she was dead herself um, before evensong. Such God, God send every um, gentleman such hawks, such hounds, and such a leman. It's a wonderful description of something responsive in nature that we, we just don't have anymore. Um, in the Monday night class, I was thinking about this as I was talking about it and, and saying that I think women are far more responsive to nature. I, I think from just caring, you know, growing up with a woman, having periods, and something happens to a woman, it becomes a part of her psyche in a way that's not quite as true for a man. Um, Suzanne loves to garden. She, you know, she's out in the garden. She's working with earth and producing flowers and fruit and um, there's a greater responsiveness, I think, intuitively in women. I think some of it's being lost in our day because women have entered a workforce in a mechanical world, but I think by nature there's that intuitive because um, women can bear children in their lives. I remember that when I was um, in college and I read um, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, I remember weeping, crying at the end of that. I was so moved by it. And I wanted to go and do my dissertation on it. Um, I can't remember now. God, my mind is going. I can't remember. There's a scene, if you know the Scarlet Letter, you know that it's about Dimsdale. The, the, he's the pastor of this early Puritan community. It's, it's Hawthorne reworking the Puritan mind because he knows it's in trouble. He's going back to the founding period. And um, uh, Dimsdale is the minister of this community. And Hester Prynne is carrying a child, but she's not married. And nobody knows that the father of this child is the minister. She's forced to wear this A on her breast to signify that she's an adulteress. She has to bear the sin. He doesn't, and he doesn't want to because it would be a scandal to the community to show his sin because he's supposed to be the, the leader. The, the, the novel ends with Dimsdale um, climbing the scaffold at the end because it's an inaugural day. I really believe, this is my reading of the Scarlet Letter, that Hawthorne is writing a story about a refounding. If you know the epics, you know that how important that is for all the epics. And that Dimsdale, in this inaugural address, is partly confessing his sin, even though it's not conspicuous. He's finally taking responsibility for the child, this little pearl child that's running around. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing scene. It's a touching, touching scene, what he does. Just before that, Dimsdale and Hester meet in the woods secretly with Pearl running around, their child running around. He's the father of this little girl. Um, Something happens when the two of them, I can't, I can't remember if, if sexually they come together again I, or if they just 
get past the public strictures that divide them. I, I can't remember, sorry. But at, at one moment in that scene, the sun comes out. And if you read the scene, you know that it's Hawthorne's way of saying whatever bad is going on there, because an adultery is what's at issue, nature approves. I can't remember what it was, something happening with Pearl, the sun comes out. And you can't read that without realizing nature approves. It's shown. So Hawthorne, who's 19th century American writer, modern, is really carrying something forward from this tradition where the, the Christian understanding of nature is that that's God's order. It's responsive to man. Man has a care in it. There's a connatural relationship between the two of them. And we see it beautifully here. I mean, the way the hounds protect the night and against any predators and finally the doe comes along and um, buries him, carries, cares for him. <clears throat> Timur Mortis. The phrase Timur Mortis contribut may is um, the fear of death dismays me. <coughs> the fear of death dismays me. That's the Latin phrase. It's taken from the prayer of the dead. Um, one of the prayers of the dead that were part of the church ceremonies. <coughs> you know that one of the um, the, I don't know if it's from the prayer of the dead, but one of the lines that the church asks us to remember is memento mori, um, remember death. Mem memento mori, remember death, remember death. We're supposed to not forget death because all of our life is supposed to be a preparation of getting ready to die. Not, not mourning, not in despair, gladly, because death is the opening to the kingdom. So memento mori, remember me. A variation on that is this, the timor mortis contribut me, the, the fear of death um, dismays me. And notice how it's a part of all of nature. Why? Because all of nature is mortal. The, all of nature is fallen. We're, it's, it's mortal. Death is a part. Everything, everything in nature at one time didn't exist. Right? Where did it all come from? That was the great question for the classical philosophers. How did something come out of nothing? Where did all this stuff come from? The Big Bang to me doesn't explain it. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a metaphor for something that happened, but how did something that didn't exist suddenly exist? Where did it come from? Once it does exist, you know that from the moment that, it's, that it comes into existence, it's already dying. Its end is in it every day, even while it's growing. There's an element of death at work in it. Um, our cells are constantly dying off and being replenished. Um, so everything in nature um, has a quality of mortality. It shares in mortality. So Timur Mortis, in what estate soever I be, Timur Mortis contribute me. As I went on a mor merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. It's a she. Timur mortis, contribute me. The fear of death dismays me. That's from a bird. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timur mortis, contribute me. When I shall die, no, no day, what country or place I cannot say. Wherefore this song sing I may. Timur mortis, contribute me. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say, Father, he said in Trinity, 
Timur Mortis, contribute me. Remember Christ said, let this pass if it's possible in the garden. He, I mean, he was bleeding tears, the prospect of death. Um, All Christian people behold and see this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity. Necessity means it can't be other than everybody's going to die. Death is awaiting everybody. There's, it's, it's a necessity. We can't escape it. It can't be other than it is. We're all going to die. Timur mortis, contribute me. Wake I or sleep, eat or eat a, I should do this in the middle English. Wake a I or sleep a, eat a or drink a. When I in my last end do think, far greater fear my soul do shrink. Timur mortis, contribute me. God grant us grace him for to serve and be at our end when we serve. And from the fiend he us preserve. Timur mortis, contribute me. Notice that that comes from a bird. <laughs> so when we leave today, everybody's going to pay more attention to birds, right? <laughs> okay, Let's see if I can do it just a very, very quick review. Um, last week, I talked about the, the two centers of the epic. One of them I called the moral center of the work. The other I called the formal. I don't have a better word. You can call it the philosophic. The, it's the principle of form, what, um, what takes place in the poet's soul to write a work. And if that isn't clear, let me put it another way. When you take a look at a work of poetry, it, it goes from a beginning to an end, it has a middle, and it has all these vents that constitute it, right? What unifies that whole? There has to be some intuition, yeah? That explains the whole thing. This is the unity of it, the action. So every poem has a formal center, something that accounts for its unity, the fact that all these things cohere. Um, if, if that isn't clear, imagine a, a portrait, a, a, a portrait of any one of us with an ear 15 times larger than it should be. The ear would be out of place, right? It wouldn't fit. If you read a play of Shakespeare's, you're not going to find a scene in Hamlet that doesn't belong. It's not going to happen. The great artist, everything coheres. What, what is it that explains that unity, that coherence. So every poem has a, a point, a center. What I, what I would call the formal center. Now the, the reason for making this distinction is this. There are two centers. The moral center of the poem is the fall. Everything is moving to that fall. Everything that Satan does anticipates it, right? When he sets off, he sets off on his quest intending to find out something about this new creation that he heard about with the goal in mind of destroying it, to find out what's there so he can do some harm to it because he knew God made it. So he wants to get back at God, that's his motive, and he sets out. When he comes there, he sees that God made these two creatures, Adam and Eve, and he's stunned by them, and he wants to, and he learns that they, they're under this prohibition. They can't eat of this tree. So he gets Eve when she's alone, he tempts her, and they fall. And the gifts that they were given before then, their happiness, their immortality, because those are the two gifts Milton identifies that 
God gave them, their happiness, their immortality, are gone. From that point on, they're going to know misery and they're going to know death. So the whole poem is leading towards that moment of the fall, and then it, that, that movement completes itself in the, what we're going to read today, when Adam sees that a savior is going to come to answer it all. Okay? So the moral center of the poem, I think, is the fall, the moment when they disobey God. That was the opening. Remember, the theme is the man's original disobedience and the goodness that came out of it. So the, the moral center is, we can put it in these terms, the, the poem is about, <laughs> if I can put it this way, the education of Adam and Eve. Up until that moment, they have no reason for thinking anything in life is different. There's no reason to, to think about anything. To, there's no contrast. They're happy. They're in bliss. But once they fall, they become self-reflective. They, they have to learn to look at themselves. And they learn that there's something wrong with them. They fight. They bitterly, um, violently fight with each other for a time and then finally recover themselves. And you know that they go to the judgment seat. Anyway, at the end, when, when Michael takes Adam to the mountain, he shows them this Savior. And then Adam learns what it was all about, why God, God allowed it. What's called in that scene, the fortunate fall, that all of this was done for the glory of God, that he allowed this to happen. That's the moral trajectory of the poem. Um, it has to do with Adam and Eve's growth. They're, 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 they're becoming conscious of themselves, having to learn to look at themselves, and, and becoming aware that a savior can help them in ways they can't themselves. That's the moral action of the poem, okay? The formal center, what I'm calling the formal center, I believe is the moment when Raphael comes to Adam to warn him. And remember, once again, we're, we're, uh, we're made aware of an irony because to Adam's mind, there's nothing to be warned about. When, when Raphael says, if you'll only be obedient, one day you will become a spirit, you become purified, um, and you'll be with God. And Adam says, what do you mean, be obedient? Because he has no reason to think that anything's going to happen. And that's when Raphael tells him the story about the war in heaven and the fall, or the, or the danger that Satan presents to him. We talked about that. It, to, me it's a, it, to me, it's one of the most telling moments in the, in the poem, because remember, Raphael says to Adam, I have to tell you about supernatural things that are beyond your knowing. To be able to describe the war in heaven, these super sensible things, these, these immaterial supernatural realities, I have to find corporeal bodies, corporeal images. Because you're a human, you can't understand what's going on in heaven. It's another dimension. That to me is a major, major point of the whole poem because it also describes exactly what Milton himself is doing. Milton doesn't begin on earth, he doesn't begin with humans, he doesn't begin with ordinary things. We're immediately in a realm of which we have no knowledge, no experience. How many of us have been witness to a war in heaven? In its own terms, the devils, we weren't witness to it, it was, it's beyond our knowing. He begins with something that, can't, that we don't know, it's not a part of our human experiences. 
So Raphael's doing that, and, and indirectly what he's doing is giving away what Milton himself is doing. <clears throat> How does the poem end? The poem ends with Michael, another angel, giving Adam immediate visions of the future. What, what, what Adam, the book is going to end with Michael giving Adam um, prophetic images of what's going to take place in history. It hasn't even happened yet. So the two poles that define Adam's action are angelic, Raphael and Michael. And we talked about the implications of that because um, before Raphael ends, he says, what I'm giving you is not a part of your memory, right? Because it didn't, he, it's not, he hasn't experienced it. It was beyond his knowing. And he said, it's going to be passed on to posterity. One of the questions that I left everybody with was, what does that mean for our reading of Genesis? If we pick up Genesis, there's no Raphael there. Milton's Adam has a, gen or Milton's Genesis, Eden, has a Raphael in it. And Raphael's saying to Adam, you're going to pass this on to posterity so an angelic knowledge beyond the knowing of men becomes a part of human nature by what Milton does with him. What does that mean for our reading of Genesis, of Scripture, our reading of man, and the importance of knowledge? And it ends that way. Raph, or Michael gives um, these visions that are immediate. Now think about that. They're not reported. He's not telling a story. They're immediate. It's an immediate vision. And my own sense is, I mean, if we were to make any sense of this, that I mean, to make it sense, to have some sense at all, it seems to me it's only possible if you know the mind of God, because God is the only one that would have foreknowledge of something that's not yet happened. So Adam is getting a, an immediate reading of God through an angel. That's going to become a part of his memory. What does that do for our reading of Genesis? After the first six visions, he, he, Milton's description is Adam becomes so fatigued because think about that. That's an immediate experience of a history that's not happened yet. He says he has to change his mode. And at that point, he tells him, he narrates the rest of it. It's at that point that he narrates a story, and that'll take him through the Messiah, and he'll give a description of Christ coming, and Adam will be overwhelmed with gratitude to see that, um, that the sin that he committed and all the consequences that have fallen from it will be answered. Because up until that time, he's almost crushed. He keeps having these experiences, the flood, the horrible killing, the slaughtering that goes on, and, and he, he beholds it all and, and becomes heavier and heavier with a sense of the weight of what he did, the consequences of what he did. But the point here is this. The, 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 what I'm calling the formal center, not the moral center, not the... Not the not the action having to do with Adam's learning, his self-knowledge. The formal center, what holds the novel, the, the epic together, are these two poles that come together that represent a knowledge that's peculiarly angelic. It's not human. That's what holds the thing together. Because here, think if, you, if that's not obvious, think about it this way. Milton did not have to write this poem this way. I hope that's clear to everybody. He could have written the epic 
on man's fall, he could have written an epic in which chapter, book one has to do with the fall and we get Satan going. He could have written three or four books on Adam and Eve. He could have written four, three or four books on Christ's life later. I mean, he, he could have written this all sorts of ways. I hope that's clear. But he wrote it this way, and the, the, dominant, the dominant modes of knowing that's carried through this action, this plot, are angelic. We get Satan, we get Raphael telling the story, we get the fall, we're in a human realm then, and then we're taken back to an angelic way of knowing. And that gets passed on through Adam to posterity. So when Raphael comes to tell Adam about what happened, and he says to him, I have to give you a story about something that took place that is beyond your knowing. It's an immaterial, supernatural world. I have to find corporeal images to do that. We talked about that last week. Remember the two, the two ways of knowing? Um, I did this right. You all have this, right? Where I put up the Aristotelian and the Platonic. Okay. Remember in the Platonic, because you start with, the, remember for Plato, because the world is in flux, undergoing change, we can't have knowledge of it. We can only have opinion, doxa. It's only when we know the forms that we have true knowledge because the forms are unchanging. So if you start with the forms, what's knowable, what's, and you have to find corporeal images, you find corporeal images, mountains, cannon, gunpowder. We never get back to the natural order. You get to corporeal images, but they're used to make clear a super sensible and immaterial reality. So um, we don't get back to nature. Is that clear? Because I remember putting the image. If I need to put it, if it's not clear, tell me. If you start with Aristotle, you start with the ordinary thing, the thing in front of you, whatever it is, a wind hover, a bird, a four-year-old girl. You'll find in that ordinary thing a supernatural reality, but you never lose contact with that ordinary thing. Right? When, when Hopkins writes about the wind hover, we learn to see the crucifixion in it. Something divine, in a fire, in a farmer working on a plow. But we never, we get, we get taken to a, at a logical level, something supernatural is real, but only in the natural thing. <clears throat> so in the, in the first, in the platonic way, um, the natural order is circumvented. We don't get back to it. And the, and the question we're left with with Milton is, if Raphael says, I've got to use these corporeal images to make clear, so he uses gunpowder and mountains, we have to ask ourselves, fine, what, what do we learn? What do the mountains represent? Because clearly they're an image of something immaterial, so they help us relate to it, we've got an image, but what do they re represent in the, in the supernatural art? We don't know. So in the, in the first, there's a disconnect. The natural order and the supernatural do not come together. Now let me stop because this is so crucial. Is that clear? If it isn't, please say. Barbara, do you have something? Go I'm not sure I'm understanding. So huh? I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding, especially since I wasn't here last week. But You're having trouble understanding? She said she's not sure. I'm not sure because since I wasn't here last week. So. 
No, 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 don't say that. say, C.S. Lewis has said it, I mean, it's sort of common knowledge, um, things. That um, the whole Protestant world is platonic in its character, and the Catholic world is various Aristotelian. Plato says, we can't know, we can't have knowledge about things. Because matter, things in matter, are always in flux. Thing comes into the world, a tree comes into the world, it gets old, it dies. It's always changing. So how do we know treeness? Only in the mind. So for Plato, the most important thing was to come to know the forms of things, because the forms themselves don't change. For example, we can look at, let's put two trees next to each other, a eucalyptus and an oak. How do we know that they're trees when they're so different? Right? One's a eucalyptus, one's an oak. You can't know that they're both trees unless you have a concept of treeness. You know the essence of something. Then you can say, take us as humans, we're all very different. Suzanne's a woman, I'm a man. We're, but we share, our essence is a humanity. Even if we're different in our sex, or to look at us, you'd say, you're different, you're not the same thing. But we are the same in the sense that we share the same essence. We're, we're humans. Um, so Plato says, you don't have real knowledge unless you know the forms of things. And so remember the Platonic cave, you want to come out of the cave because so long as you're in the cave, you're, you're in a cave and you're trapped by appearances. You take appearances, things that are undergoing change for reality when it's not real. The only real thing is here. For a Christian, it would be heaven. What's unchanging? What's eternal? Aristotle says um, we can know the essences of things because they're actually existing in them. So a, a tree, a eucalyptus tree, has the essence of tree in it, or it wouldn't be a tree. It's the same thing with eucalyptus, right? Now let me try to make this a little bit clearer because this is sort of one-on-one philosophy in five minutes. Um, do dogs know color? Any kind of, let's just take a dog, any animal. Do dogs know color? Or let me put this, sorry. Do dogs know the notion of color? Why? What do they know? Well, they know, I think, maybe I'm wrong here, they know green and red, or maybe dogs don't have color sense, I don't know, but you know that they only have senses, they don't have an intellect. So an animal may be able to, I'm not even sure if animals can distinguish colors, but we, you know that we know red, yellow, blue, green, okay. Do our senses know the notion of color? Our senses? No. What our senses receive from the world are colors, different light reflections or whatever constitutes a color, red, blue, green, right? If animals, can distinguish colors, they would know them too. 
But nobody without a mind would know the notion color because color doesn't come to our senses. The actual colors themselves do. Color itself is an abstraction. It's an essence. How do we get to an essence? Because we take particular things Um, a red pencil, a blue pencil, a yellow pencil, right? But we still know they have pencilness between us in common. So we could say pencil, or you know, even if there's a dozen different kinds of pencils, we can still say pencil because we understand the notion of pencilness, the essence. Is that clear? Same thing with trees. So if you have a eucalyptus and an oak, and they're different, how do you know that they're trees unless you know the essence of a tree? Think about the importance of that for doctors and lawyers. When a judge impanels a jury, the jury has to have some notion of justice, its essence, in order to decide on a case because all cases are different. How do you make a decision, a judgment on a case when they're all different if you don't have a concept of justice? When you're choosing a jury, you, you want to, I mean, presumably, <laughs> You do it on the trust that this person is, is so clear on what justice is that he'll be helpful in making the decision. If he doesn't, you don't want him in a panel. When a doctor makes a decision and he looks at 10 people who have the same symptoms, you know that you're trusting that he understands the nature of that problem to prescribe a remedy because doctors often make mistakes. They misread, right? So um, we're corporeal creatures. We take in th things through our bodies. We're not angelic. We're, we're not angels. Angels don't have bodies. We have bodies. We take things in through our senses, but our mind abstracts from them to something more universal. Justice, courage, truth, beauty, treeness, you know, whatever the abstraction is. Animals can't do that. Even though there's a part of us that's, I mean, we belong to the animal category. We've got bodies. Is that clear, Barbara? Yes. So for Plato, um, the goal for Plato was the forms. And he believed that we had to move from things because things are constantly in flux. Plato's, Plato's attitude towards the body was demeaning. He was distrustful of physical things. He said of the human body, the human body is a prison house. The Middle Ages were platonic. If you know anything about the history, you know that St. Augustine has a plate and a strain in him. Because Plato was the, the major philosopher who formed the Middle Ages. It isn't until the ninth century that Aristotle comes back, who believes in the importance of material causes because he knows the essence. In every tree, a eucalyptus, it has treeness in it, or it wouldn't be a tree. So to Aristotle, the essence is the nature is always in the thing. The mind grasps it, the senses can't, the mind grasps it. It's only after Aristotle comes into the world, 9th, 10th, 11th century, then you get um, Alfred, Tom, I think Thomas's teacher, and then Thomas. And what comes after that? Copernicus and modern sciences. You can't get modern sciences in a platonic world because they derogate material causes. They look down on material causes. The basis of science, material causes. So in these two worldviews, you've got two very different ways of reading the world. 
With Raphael, you're saying these supernatural things are our starting point. I have to find ways of making it clear to you what they were. So I'm going to find corporeal images so that you'll understand. So he finds corporeal images, but we never get to this order. We're just taken back here. So the whole natural, we've lost our way into the natural order. We don't know. We're left here. Um, and the implications of that for Milton's poem are in some ways extraordinary for the reasons that I've said. The knowledge that Adams receives is not a human knowledge, it's angelic knowledge. The knowledge that he will carry, give to posterity, will be angelic. The knowledge that he gets at the end is um, angelic, it's from Michael. And not only is, is it an angelic, it, it seems to me godlike because it's, it's showing a foreknowledge of things yet to be. What does that say about Milton? What does that say of his reading of Genesis, of our reading of Genesis? Okay, those are the major concerns that I'm raising here about this poem and what Milton is doing. And I read you that line from Harold Bloom. It's on the back of the um, flyer that I made where Bloom says that, um, does anybody have that flyer handy? He says, um, Critics have looked to Milton to explain a radical turn in the development of Western civilization. Here's Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom, for example, in The Anxiety of Influence, says, Milton is the central problem in any theory and history of poetic influence in English. I think that's an exaggeration, I, um, partly because Bloom admired Milton so much, but it's truthful in a sense. Um, the, the poets following the Renaissance look back to Milton as the great precursor going forward. He stands on the verge of modernity and, and one of the greatest poets and, and the only one before Joyce to write an epic. So Milton is at that threshold of modernity and in lots of ways he's representative of the Protestant Reformation mind. So what he's given us in this great problem is this extraordinary story about the fall. It's called every, the, all stories because all things exist in. He's going back to the fall. So in a sense, he's explaining every one of the epics that preceded him. All, all problems go back to this problem. But it's also fraught with all these other larger concerns. So he's, he's so important for understanding the modern world for all of these reasons. Let me stop here, because I want to I get to quickly go over the end. But any questions about this? These are some of the concerns that, that I think we have to carry into our reading. Um, I read some of the passages from critics the last couple of weeks. I, there's lots more I, I could have read. There just isn't much time. But if you read the criticisms on Milton, you just find that there are, some people hate him, some people love him, some people enjoy his um, problematic aspects, they, they think it's that they're closer to reality and I read that line from C.S. Lewis where C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis like 
very much admired the poem because in his reading of it, which I think is accurate in lots of ways, he said that that Milton did this extraordinary job of unmasking the false heroism. You know, that, that Satan presents this great glory that he's taking on all of these things. Um, and um, Lewis admired the poem because he shows how illusory it is. It's just going to all come to nothing. Um, when we get to the fall, remember Milton's great virtues were patience and endurance and humility. That That's one of the effects. That, that those are the Christian virtues that replace the virtues of Homer and you know, the heroism, the nobility of Homer, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Um, this is a telling comment. I don't like dis um, disagreeing with Lewis because I admire him so much, but I think he's, I think he's absolutely wrong here. He said, the people who have um, trouble with God, Milton's God, have trouble with Milton's God because they have trouble with God, period. I think Lewis is absolutely wrong in that. Lots of people have trouble with Milton's God because in lots of ways he's not a very good God. He's, there's a spiteful quality, a defensive quality, a, a school, I mean, some people call him a sort of schoolmaster figure. Um, Milton's rendering of God and the Son is full of problems. And one of the difficulties with it, I think, is this. Um, Lewis is very clear. You, there are lots of critics who admire Satan because he seems so noble. And he has all the heroic quality. He risks dangers. He does things other people don't do. Um, <clears throat> at times he seems divided. Um, and C.S. Lewis is concerned to show how uh, deceptive that is. Because if you read the whole story, you see Satan coming to nothing. So you can't romanticize Satan. And Lewis's criticism goes right to the heart of that because so many critics do romanticize him. But I think he's wrong in the sense that, um, that when you set Satan next to God with the unlikable qualities of God, it gets easier to dismiss God. And lots of critics do. Um, so what Milton has done is created these really... He, the poem is expressive of so many things that entered the West in the Reformation that are still with us. Okay. Um, I want to I want to do a quick uh, summary of books eleven and twelve, and then I've got some questions to end with. But let me stop for a minute. Is all of this clear? Any questions about where we are at this point? The overview week, two weeks from now, is going to be really really important. Let me quickly do a review here. Book, book 11. Adam and Eve have just fallen. You know that. Um, the effects of the fall are horrible on both of them. Um, Eve carries um, hateful motives into what she does with Adam. She doesn't want to be alone. The thought that he would be with another woman um, leads her um, almost to a point of despair. She thinks about both of them taking their lives. There's something murderous in her. She even, she has envy enters her because she, she entertains the idea of having power over him now. So she carries all of that to him. 
he he uh, is enraged with her, but the thought of being without her undoes him, so he eats. And we talked about this, I think. If you put the two together, Adam's, I believe Adam's sin is greater than hers. She's deceived. He's not. He willfully disobeys because this is one of Milton's criticism of men. Adam makes Eve more important to, to him than God. And it's that likeness in men that Milton is consistently critical of in, in a number of places in the poem. It shows the extraordinary power that a woman has over a man. In that way, Milton's reading of women and men is consistent with Homer and Virgil. You, you know, if you've read the Odyssey, the Odyssey, you know that the beauty of women is in some ways overpowering to men. Um, God and the son watch all of this, and the son asks God if he can atone for the sin. And, um, that's at the beginning of 11. And the father accepts, and then the father sends Michael down to take Adam and Eve out of the garden. Um, so the expulsion is going to take place here. When he comes to Mike or to Adam, Eve leaves. Interestingly, again, remember when Raphael came, she went in. Uh, Michael will put Eve under a sleep, as if she's not as capable of seeing this as a woman as Adam is, and then takes Adam up on a mountain and shows him these visions. First vision, he shows him Cain killing Adam. That's about line 423, 445. It's Adam's first experience of death, and it horrifies him. Now think about that, because the first vision, and by, remember, these are immediate. They're immediate. They're not narrated. They're not mediated. He sees them as they are. So Adam's be, being given a, a foreknowledge of things that have not yet happened. Um, the second vision, Adam is shown a hospital full of illnesses and sicknesses and diseases. So his heart is already beginning to crush because he's seen the effects of his sin. Cain killed Abel. Then he's watching disease enter the world. Um, in the third vision, about line 6.30 or so, um, men from the hills, from the tribe of um, Seth, come down to the plains, which is the, um, the area of Cain and his descendants. So in, in the plains area, with the descendants of Cain, um, Adam sees that there's all this reverie and dancing and music and playing and the, the women are loose, um, making light of things. Seth and his descendants come down from the hills because they're associated with the mountains, the high place with God. They come down and the men, once again, are sober, charmed by the women that they begin to engage. So the, the race of Cain and the race of Seth mingle and it produces this lascivious group on the plains out of the mountains. Remember, the mountains is where Moses meets God, where man meets God in his holy temple. Line 665, take a look at that, book, book 11, just quickly. It's 634. Adam is so disgusted at watching what happens when the, when the, the race of Seth begin to um, move about with the women. 
that he gets to <laughs> this is <laughs> that's what men do. As he watches it, his first response is, see what these women do. They're, the, they're these women again, doing what women do. This is about line 630. To whom thus Adam of short joy bereft, O pity and shame, that they who live well entered so fair should turn aside to tread paths indirect, or in the midway faint, but still I see the tenor of man's woe holds in the same from women to, be, from women to, be, um, to begin. So once again, women are at the fault of this. We all know that. Where's Don when I need him? <laughs> You're on your own today. <laughs> <laughs> notice, notice Michael's response. From man's effeminate slackness it begins, said the angel. So Michael's not going to let Adam off the hook here. Once again, and this is made clear in numerous times, men may blame women, but it's their own lightness that gets them into this problem. Um, Adam's fourth vision, he sees the age of giants. Take a look at 655. Um, Scarce with life the shepherds fly, but call in aid which makes a bloody fray. With cruel tournament the squadrons join where cattle pastured late, now scattered lies. With carcasses the arms in the um, ensanguined field deserted. Others to a city strong lay siege encamped by battery scale and mine, assaulting others from the wall to fend with dart and javelin, goes on and on. Where are we? A city under siege? Where are we? You guys know this. Where are, yeah, in the Iliad, Troy. So glad. This is the Iliad. This is Milton's critique. So out of the murder, we go through these various stages and then come to what? The heroic age that begins with the Iliad, the, the siege of Troy, the destruction of Troy. So we're in the world of cities and the heroic virtues. This is the world of Achilles, of Odysseus. It's the world of Virgil's Aeneid, Rome, and Aeneas. So all the heroic virtues of the classical world are now here. The city comes into existence. Till at last of middle age, go down a few lines, one rising imminent in wise deport spake much of right and wrong, of justice, of religion, truth, and peace, and judgment from above, him old and young exploded, and had seized with violent hands, had not a cloud descending snatched him thence. So Enoch arises to answer these wrongs, and remember he gets his knowledge from above. So indirectly Enoch is the critique, the implied critique of Homer and Virgil in that heroic age. Enoch, the only righteous in a world perverse, is what Milton says. In the fifth vision, we, um, um, we are given a view of Noah, and Adam sinks down at the side of the flood. This is 7, 750. Um, he collapses. He's so overwhelmed because he watches the earth flood. All people are destroyed, and he knows that he's the cause of it. So again and again and again in all of these earlier visions, Adam becomes heavier and heavier with a sorrow at seeing the implications of his choice. Um, 890, turn to line 890 or so. The sixth vision is the vision of the flood receding and God making a covenant. Um, uh, 
about line 875, Adam says, Then I rejoice for one man found so perfect and so just that God vouchsafes to raise another world. So it's from Noah. First Enoch, remember that. Enoch is um, the, the first noble figure in this. And then um, Noah, um, who made it possible for another world to come into being. <coughs> Go down a few lines. Yet those removed such grace shall one just one man find in his sight that he relents not to blot out mankind and makes a covenant never to destroy the earth again by flood, nor let the sea surpass his bounds, nor rain to drown the world with man therein or beast. But when he brings over the earth a cloud, will therein set his triple-colored bow, wherein to look and call to mind his covenant. Day and night, seed time and harvest, heat and hoary frost, shall hold their course till fire purge all things new, both heaven and earth, wherein the just shall dwell. That's a beautiful line, I think. Seed time and harvest, heat and hoary frost. So Adam, at the end of this first series of visions, is momentarily refreshed at seeing God made this covenant. Book 12 begins with uh, Michael um, changing the mode. Now he's going to narrate and it's here that the whole biblical account of history comes into play. Because it begins with a description of Abraham being called out um, at the very beginning. And, and remember, Abraham had to leave his God, his false God, his family. So he had to give up everything in order to follow God. So Abraham is looked as the first man who defines what faith is. He had to leave his home. Uh, and do God's will. Um, before this, it described briefly the um, Babel and Nim, uh, Nimrod, the giants, the age of the giants, and the attempt to unify everybody um, um, with Babel and the destruction of it. After Abraham comes the, tw the founding of the twelve tribes and then 330 David, the description of David, about 225 through the twelve tribes to rule by laws ordained from God. So God calls out a people um, to carry his word, his covenant um, to the rest of the world. Moses, he gives the law to, and then David comes about line 325. Um, a promise shall receive irrevocable that his regal throne forever shall endure. The like shall sing all prophecy that of the royal stock of David, so I name this king, shall rise a son. Um, the woman's seed to thee foretold, foretold to Abraham, as in whom shall trust all nations. So we're made aware of the universal call of God that the Jews were called out for a mission to bring to everybody. Um, the, the line that will go to Christ um, is laid out now, about line 360. Um, At last they seize the scepter and regard not David's son, then lose it to a stranger, that the true anointed King Messiah might be born, barred of his right, yet at his birth a star unseen before in heaven proclaims him come. 
this is the Messiah. When um, Adam watches this, um, Michael tells him that the Messiah will come and destroy Satan or, or all his works, about line 395. Which he who comes, thy Savior, shall rescue, not by destroying Satan, but his works. Notice the emphasis that phrase is given, because that was central to the Reformation. Um, works don't save you. It's only faith. And he associates that here with Savior, I mean with uh, Satan. Not by destroying Satan, but his works in thee and in thy seed, nor can this be, but by fulfilling that which thou didst want, obedience to the law of God imposed on penalty of death. This is where the phrase fortunate fall comes. When Adam watches this, he is overcome with gratitude. Line 470, O goodness infinite, goodness immense, that all this good of evil shall produce an evil turn to good. This is the Felix Copeland, the fortunate fall. At the, at the side of this, Adam is um, grateful and humbled um, to know that the horrors that he did were all meant to lead to this. Um, when he ends um, with the knowledge of the comfort about line, take a look at line, I think about 505. Um, Thus they win great numbers. These are the apostles being set out of each nation to receive with joy the tidings brought from heaven. At length their ministry performed and race will run, their doctrine and their story written left, they die. But in their room as they forewarn, wolves shall succeed for teachers, grievous wolves, who all the sacred mysteries of heaven to their own vile advantages shall turn of lucre and ambition and the truth with superstitions and traditions taint left only in those written records pure. The only thing that has any purity is scripture. The, the traditions that he's talking about, the superstitions, um, that's, Catholic, that's the Catholic and Anglican churches in Milton's. Um, and the truth with superstitions and traditions taint. So the purity of the scripture will be tainted by what these traditions and people do with them. Um, he, even, he even names the protectorate under Cromwell. Um, then they shall seek to avail themselves of names places and titles, and with these to join secular power. That's when Cromwell comes in to try to answer the religious problems that England hasn't been able to solve. You all remember that, right? That's clearly an allusion to Cromwell. And with these to join secular power, though feigning still to act by spiritual to themselves, appropriating the spirit of God. Remember, Henry wanted to impose the Anglican religion on the Scots and the Presbyterians, and the Presbyterians wanted to do it um, with him. The visions ended. Um, Adam replies, this is about 555. How soon hath thy prediction, seer blessed, measured this transient world, the race of time till time stand fixed beyond, is all abyss. What will I know? What can I know? Um, this is what he learns, and it seems to me this is repeating the moral lesson that he learned after the temptation about line 560. Henceforth I learn that to obey is best and love with fear the only God to walk as in his presence ever to observe his providence and on him soul depend 
merciful over all his works, with good still overcoming evil, and by small accomplishing great things by things deemed weak, subverting worldly strong and worldly wise by simply meek, that suffering for truth's sake is fortitude to highest victory, and to the faithful death the gate of life taught this by his example whom I now acknowledge my Redeemer ever blessed. That's Christ. Michael responds to me, they're lovely lines. Um, he says, This having learnt, thou hast attained the sum of wisdom, hope no higher, though all the stars thou knowest by name, and all the ethereal powers, all secrets of the deep, all nature's works, or works of God in heaven, air, earth, or sea, and all the riches of this world enjoyest, and all the rule one empire, only add deeds to thy knowledge answerable, add faith. Add virtue, patience, temperance, add love by name to come called charity, the soul of all the rest. Then wilt thou not be loath to leave this paradise, but shall possess a paradise within thee, happier far. Remember in um, one of the earlier books, Satan said, I myself am hell, which wherever he went, he would carry hell with him. This is the um, reverse of that. Michael is saying to Adam, if you will do these things, you won't be loath, you won't be sorry to leave, because you will carry paradise within you. It'll be in you, um, the inner spirit. Um, and with that, um, they turn around and they see the angels um, coming to guard paradise. Michael takes him by the hand and um, um, leaves. Let me read the ending here, because it's really lovely. So spake our mother Eve, she comes out um, and she was um, given intimations of all of this in her sleep. So she says, even in sleep I have some knowledge. So she will carry some of this forward, even though she didn't receive it um, as Adam did. <clears throat> and Adam heard well pleased, but answered not. For now too nigh the archangels stood, and from the other hill to their fixed station, all in bright array, the cherubim descended on the ground gliding meteorous, an evening mist risen from a river or the marshes glides and gathers ground fast at the um, labor's heel, homeward returning. High in front advance, the um, brandy sword of God before them blaze, fierce as a comet, which with torrid heat and vapor at the Libyan air, as the Libyan air just, began to parch that temperate clime. So what was before temperate and balmy, now is suffocating in its heat. It's just too hot. Um, whereat in either hand the hastening angel caught our lingering parents and to the eastern gate led them direct and down the cliff at fast to the subjected plain, then disappeared. They looking back all the eastern side beheld of paradise so late their happy seat waved over by that flaming brand the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms, some nat natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest, in providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. If any of you have read um, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, you'll recognize the source of Dickens' ending, he gave it one ending, and critics were so upset because it was so sentimentalized that he changed it. If you read The End of Great Expectations, you, you can't read it without feeling that 
Milton just came out of Paradise Lost or reading it because the way he describes Pippin and Stella is almost exactly in this language. Um, you know, that's Milton's influence, and that's how strong it is. Um, okay, um, a number of things to do here. We don't have time, um, but I just want to um, raise some questions and then leave a few minutes for any comments or anything you want to anything you want to do. Um, the poem ends with Michael giving these visions to um, Adam and the two of them being led out of paradise. By the way, um, Steinbeck, East of Eden, Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden, looks back to these same descriptions. Um, so we continue to see Milton's influence um, in major ways in some, some important modern writers. Um, some of the things we have to take note of when we try to put this thing together. Milton's view of God and the Trinity, one of the most important things to think about. It's impossible to read the exchanges between the Father and the Son without being aware that they are unaware of each other. What the Father says is something the Son doesn't know and his response is appropriate. Um, it's as if they're two distinct individuals. Um, so we get a sense of there being individuals, not indwelling. It's not an indwelling trinity of persons. Um, was Milton wise to do that? Difficult question. But it's hard to read them and not be aware that they seem to be in individuals that do not know each other. When you read Dante, when we get to the Paradiso, you're going to know long before we ever get to the Trinity, that as Dante and Beatrice approach God, they're indwelling. Beatrice already knows what Dante is going to say before he says it. Because they're becoming one. In the scene in which God says to all the gathered angels, um, Behold, this day I, I have begotten the, of the Son. Remember, that's the crux of the book in one sense because it's that action that justifies Satan's revolt. He believes that God is being despotic, arbitrary, in, in elevating the Son as if they were all, that's his argument, as if they were all of the same nature, as if there was something angelic, but the Son was elevated. Even though the Son was the means of creating everybody else, how, how that comes to be, I don't know, but they're all of the same nature, and God arbitrarily elevates him. Is, is Milton's God Arian? Is Christ, is Milton Arian? Is, is Christ, is the Son like the angels, that's the argument that Milton, or I mean that Satan makes, of the same nature um, and artificially elevated? Um, serious question. Um, but we don't have any sense that an indwelling goes on. They're distinct and um, you know, you can argue, one can argue um, that, like Raphael, Milton has to find a way of describing this. So there's a danger in, in taking all of this too literally. That what we're supposed to understand is even if they're communicating with each other and saying things they don't, they didn't already know between each other, that that's a metaphor for an indwelling. Difficult to... You know, I, I find that hard, but it's, it's something at least we have to keep in mind. Milton Satan. Lots of critics read The Paradise Lost um, 
being more attracted to finding Satan more attractive than God. Um, Satan's evil. I mean, we can identify with a fallen creature. It's hard to identify with a God in some ways, um, as Milton presents him. <coughs> Adam and Eve are, are, I mean, I think his treatment of Adam and Eve is extraordinary. I mean, the, the opening scene showing the two of them together is wonderful. They're gracious and um, um, in accord. They're perfectly courteous with each other. They really are one in different ways. Um, what happens after the fall is dramatically so powerful. They, they, are, they are at each other's throats and then they realize that um, they, they have to find a better self and come to themselves and go on um, um, contrite, changed, humbled. Um, the, I, I want to point out this passage. If you go back to um, book 12 again just for a minute. This is going to be crucial to my um, wrap-up next week. Go to line 400 in book 12. Here's one of the last questions I'd like to put to everybody before we come together for the overview. If you look at, at Milton's treatment of Satan, the dramatic power with which he renders Satan, if you look at Milton's treatment of the father and son, and you look at the Milton's treatment of um, Adam and Eve before the fall and after the fall, the, it seems to me the, the, the dramatic power of the poem, you guys can disagree here, to, to feel free. I think the dramatic power of the poem rests with Satan because he's so concretely realized and we, we witness him going through all these going through chaos and reaching a point of near extinction and then the meetings of Gabriel and Uriel and, and the tempting and then to watch Adam and Eve before the temptation and after. If you set those next to Christ, the Messiah at the end, who's described in an abstraction, nothing of Christ's life is rendered concretely at all. Does that say anything? Why does, what does that say? Take a look at on book 12 and line 402 or so. He says, The law of God exact he shall fulfill both by obedience, this is Christ, both by obedience and by love, though love alone fulfill the law, thy punishment he shall endure by coming in the flesh to a reproachful life and cursed death, proclaiming life to all who shall believe in his redemption, and that his obedience imputed becomes theirs by faith, his merits to save them, not their own, though legal works. For this he shall live hated or blasphemed, seized on by force, judged, and to death condemned a shameful and accursed, nailed to the cross by his own nation, slain for bringing life. But to the cross he nails thy enemies, the law that is against thee, and the sins of all mankind, with him they're crucified, never to hurt them more who rightly trust in his satisfaction. So he dies, but soon he revives. You know that he will um, be resurrected. When you set these passages on the Messiah next to Milton's treatment of Satan, Adam and Eve, what are your, what's your response? What do you guys, um, 
Any thoughts on that? to put this as positively as I can. In the opening of the poem, Milton makes clear that the purpose of the poem is to justify the ways of God to men. Yeah, that's his purpose. Um, that's what he's setting out to do. If we watch, if we watch, if we keep our focus on the, the moral trajectory of the poem, the moral plot involving Adam, it seems to me that we can say that the, the purpose of the poem is to show the glory of God in this sense. We watch these demonic powers gather after the fall. Satan um, works it out, so he's going to be the one to take on this quest, this heroic quest, to find out what's involved in this new creation that God came up with and see if he can do some harm to get back at God. He gets there and he finds Adam and Eve there. They're innocent, but they're under, they're, they're under this prohibition not to do something. He tempts them and they fall. So in one sense, the, to, to show, to justify the ways of God to men, to men is to show how demonic powers are at work tempting men to a fall. Man becomes aware of himself in that fall, and, but he learns that God is great enough that in his mercy he's going to do something to forgive him. And he sends the Messiah. So in, one, in the moral sense, the whole poem is moving towards the fall of man, man's learning about himself and becoming aware he's not capable of answering the fall, this disobedience against God. That the only way that that sin will be satisfied, answered in justice, as if a Messiah comes in and we get this treatment. So, so if, the, if the opening description has any meaning, I think, it, it, it is that the poem is setting out to show how good God is in answering this awful act on Adam's part um, by, by allowing the Son to become Christ to take on the sin and um, save man. If, if anybody disagrees, speak up here. But I, th I think we can say, in one sense, that describes the action of the poem. Um, that what, how God is at work, that he allowed all of this to happen to show the glory of his love, of his mercy. If you put all of this together, if that's, if that's an accurate description, and you look at Milton's treatment of Satan, the father and son, and Adam and Eve, and the Messiah, I'm asking what your response is to the way in which the Messiah is treated here at the end. You set the poem, all that's gone on before this, next to this passage, which is the culmination of the poem. This is the Messiah who's going to answer everything. I'm asking what your response is. Had what? Are you asking, does it look like Christ and the Messiah comes out on top? Yes. If that's, but, you know, that's putting it in a crude way. I'm trying to ask it and not 
point this in any way. I'm trying to be as neutral as I can. I'm, what I'm at, if the poem is about justifying the ways of God to man, that's what it's about. And, and the poem shows that man fell. He, he was tempted by this great devil. He fell. There was this war in heaven over this fall of the angels. And it all comes down to on a human scale that, that, that men are, have been involved in this heavenly battle, this spiritual battle with demonic forces. And, but with respect to us as humans, we're left with a sin that we can't atone for and that Christ does. So that in one sense, the poem is showing that it's justifying the ways of God, that God allowed this to his greater glory because he shows how good he is by Wait, wait, let me, by uh, the, the son offering to atone for this and doing that. So if, I, if you take a look at the whole action and you put them together, particularly with the way in which the Messiah is presented at the end, what do we do with it? What do you make, do you, any, I'm just asking for a general response. I don't know if that helped at all, but... Barbara, do you have something? Presentation of Adam and Eve, of Satan, and of Christ. How would you, how would you compare them? Are they all the same? Does he prefer one to another? See, I don't want to do that. I'm just put them all together. What I'm asking is put them all together. If this is about justifying the ways of God to man, and the 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 and I mean I'm putting it in a very simplistic form. I mean that's the plot, but but that that's it's I mean that's at its core. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. Milton believed in Christ. The whole poem goes to him. Adam says, oh "My God, I'm grateful for all this that anybody would have done this." So we we when you look at the dramatic rendering of the whole poem and you put it together and you come to the end and with the Messiah, I'm asking, when you put all of that together, what's your response? particularly with the Messiah, because he's, it's, it's only through him that all of this is answered. So I'm asking, if you put the whole thing together with the Messiah in mind, what's your response? The Messiah gets credit for saving everybody, but he's not, I mean, he doesn't seem very, He's not in here very much. And so his treatment is minimal considering that he's a, a really the, the whole thing. Can you make anything of that? Does that, what does that, can you flesh that out? Do you draw any conclusions? What do you do with that? Yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's... Does so Milton not feel that he's as important as Satan here? I mean, that's where I'm, like... It's one of the questions, I mean, it seems... Lines. I didn't think yeah. the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, had that much presence here. Yeah. My question is, what do we do with that? What do you, what... It's, it's hard not to see that when you put the whole poem together, and my question is, when you see it, then what? What do you what do we what do you do? I'm asking what your response to all of this is. 
Maybe we should leave it here. My first response is I don't like it. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing that I want to say here, that's really, in, I'd like everybody to look at his description of the cross. Okay, I mean I I just read it so, but we we have masses in which we venerate the cross. I mean there you know, the whole cross up there and everybody venerates it. Everything that we get concerning the Messiah is through an intellectual and intellectual description. Huh? Did you, was right. you yeah. yeah. It's it's an abstraction. It's it's a remove. When so much of what we get of Satan and the Father and Son and Adam and Eve is rendered concretely. There's a real life to them. There's a dramatic power in all of them. I'm I'm not comfortable at all with the Father and Son. I, I it, what he does with Father and Son um, really troubles me, but but they're rendered concretely, you know? When we get to the Messiah, who is the end of all of this, it's, it, the, what the Messiah does is presented in an intellectual abstraction at a remove. Um, and when we present, the, when the cross is described, once again, we don't get a description of anybody on the cross. And let me put it this way, if I can. I mean, now I'm gonna start coloring it. I've wanted to. We don't get an image of a God allowing himself to be completely vulnerable. There's no weakness rendered. Everything in the, in the poem is described in terms of power, this illusory, or a power or a natural good undone, Adam and Eve. Um, how concretely does Milton realize Christ in his life and anything he does or what happens on the cross? Because the cross, I mean, take a look at those lines. But to the cross, he nails thy enemies. Do you have a pitch, any sense here, dramatically rendered, of a God who took his infinite powers, his love, to a cross and allowed it to be crucified? That there's some glory in the cross. Remember, one of the paradoxes I've been giving, I did it in the, in the uh, Windhover poem, but I think I've done it in other points is that one of the strange things about the cross is it, it is the most beautiful, take this for ironies, paradox, it is the most extraordinarily beautiful and grotesque image of all of literature. It's a God allowing himself to be disfigured, crucified, humiliated, killed, a God who's immortal, killed. It's the ugliest thing in the world and the most beautiful. Is there anything more beautiful? As, as, and as an expression of what? It's not just a place to nail God's enemies. It's a place Christ invites everybody to go. Pick up your cross, follow me, die my death. It's one of the most extraordinary images, paradoxes, at the center of Christianity. Um, it's just a very, very, it's, a, it's, a, it's full of mysteries and extraordinary beauty and grotesque, you know, everything's in it. I put this another way. How good is Milton at rendering love? He's terrible. <laughs> he doesn't do it through the whole poem. Go, I mean, flesh that well, out. The, like, the what's only in... love, okay, the only love that I see described is the love between Adam and Eve before the fall and their love of some nebulous creator, but at that point it's pretty yeah. nebulous. They yeah. don't know. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing that's devoid of in here. There isn't, there isn't love. There isn't supernatural love in his yeah, whole poem. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I don't want it to just be pushed to Protestantism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what, well, that's I the part that worries me about this. I know, I know, I know. It's the only Protestant room. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I, I want. I'm, I got to be really careful right now because. No, 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 no. Uh, if you do, I'll be angry. I'll be really upset at you if you don't. If you don't, because you've been a blessing. That I mean, I, I just want everybody's prayers um, for Sue to even say that. No, I'm, I'm so grateful to you. You don't, but, but that's that's it. Seems that's one of the questions I'm going to. And in the overview, you might want to skip next week. In the overview, I've got to go to this because it's crucial to me. When we read Dante. You're going to find there is nothing that goes on in that poem that isn't an expression of an absolutely concretely realized love between him and Virgil, between him and Mary, between him and Lucia, between him and Beatrice, and ultimately towards the souls in heaven and God. It's all worked out. You, I mean, you, I mean, you so hit it on the head. You said, you said it. Nowhere. And um, what I, I've got to put this: Are there implications to that that go to his faith? We can push it too far, and I don't want to do that, but I don't want to avoid that question. Is there something there? And if there is, what is it? This isn't small to me. It's just not a small thing. Um, Milton is very aware of evil, very aware. It has a tremendous dramatic force. Um, he shows the power of it and how illusory he is. That, that is an extraordinary thing. Lewis admired the poem, I think largely for that reason. Milton has this sense of how, how glamorous, how illusory glamorous evil is. Um, we watch God and the Son abstractly answering it. We're, we're given the description of a Messiah, but the description is an intellectual abstraction. So to remove, in dealing with weakness or humility, I mean, he makes it clear with Adam and Eve, the, the great virtues, according to Milton, are Patience, endurance, martyrdom, you know. Any other virtues, the heroic virtues in the natural order for the pagans, don't exist. When it comes to describing love being vulnerable, and I'm and before the fall, I mean, I'm, I'm with Sue in this. Before the fall, there's no vulnerability. There's nothing to lose. They don't know anything. Um, I, I, my own, this is my personal reading. I, I, I would think most people would share it. Adam and Eve are more sympathetic, more human to me. I can identify them more completely after the fall because they quarrel, they fight, they make up, they become contrite. Um, Milton describes it as a, as a prevenient grace being given to them so they can go to the judgment seat because otherwise they couldn't have done it on their own. Because where does that come from? For Milton, you don't have it. After the fall, it's gone. There's nothing man can do that's good. But it's a touching relationship because it's the beginning of a love that comes from having to deal with evil, whereas before they didn't have to deal with it. So in human terms, he gets close there, but it's relatively brief in the scope of the poem. And then when we go to the ultimate answer of it, this Messiah, we don't get anything. And that's interesting because he, he is love itself in a human in a human and divine form. So my question is, and I don't want to press it right now, but I really want to put it out there. Are there implications to this? Um, if so, what? I, and I don't. I want. I, I'm asking everybody to be careful here, but. 
take a look at these questions because we've been dealing with lots of troubling things all along. Okay, let me leave it here. Two weeks we meet, overview. I really would be grateful if you would think about these things and come with some thoughts because that's going to be the time to, to offer them, okay? You guys have a good week break. If you can start Dante, do. Um, because we'll be picking them up pretty directly.